This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is shareable. The show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. My guest today is Christopher S. Penn, and he's an authority on analytics, digital marketing, and marketing technology. I've been following Chris for years, a subscriber to his newsletter, follow him on social media, and generally run in a lot of the same circles as him. He's a recognized thought leader, a best-selling author, and a keynote speaker, and he has shaped four key fields in the marketing industry, Google Analytics adoption, data-driven marketing, modern email marketing, and artificial intelligence and machine learning and marketing. As the chief innovator of Trust Insights, he is responsible for the creation of products and services, creation and maintenance of all code and intellectual property, technology and marketing strategy, brand awareness, and research and development. Chris is also an IBM champion in IBM Business Analytics. He's a co-founder of the groundbreaking PodCamp conference. So if you've ever been to a PodCamp, thanks, Chris. He's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Marketing Over Coffee podcast. We talk about all sorts of really cool stuff there. Strongly advise you listen. And prior to co-founding True Insights or Trust Insights, uh, he built the marketing for a series of startups with 100% successful exit rate in the financial services, software as a service, software, and public relations industries. Uh, Chris is a Google Analytics certified professional an AdWords certified professional, a Google Digital Sales certified professional, a HubSpot inbound certified professional. I mean, the guy is straight up smart. And he's also the author of over two dozen marketing books, including bestsellers such as AI for Marketers, A Primer and Introduction, uh, Marketing White Belt, Basics for Digital Marketers, still super relevant, Marketing Red Belt, Marketing Blue Belt, uh, which is From Data Zero to Marketing Hero and Leading Innovation, for God's sakes. Listen to this episode. Chris is really smart, and we get into some super deep territory. And I think it would be a really, really good idea for you as a marketer to listen to this. So without further ado, this is Shareable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Shareable. Today, I have Mr. Awaken Your Superhero himself. So my first question is, Mr. Mr. Chris S. Penn, can you tell me if you had any one superpower, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I, it depends on the, I guess, which comic book universe uh, and and how deeply nerdy you want to get. Okay, because- so I'm a huge nerd, and I think you're one of the few guests I've had that could nerd out with me properly. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to clarify the question for you in a way that I, uh, I I think you'll appreciate. You can either choose one super. Uh, heroes powers i you can have like the full spider set or you know everything that is um you know the incredible hulk or whatever or you can choose one individual superpower i'm gonna go with um the canonical uh silver age or a dceu version of the flash and the reason why is that when you look at what that 
particular power entails, access to the speed force and things like the ability to travel through time, pretty much immortality because you heal instantly um, and you can move at or close to the speed of light. Um, when you take all the handcuffs off and all the really stupid plot devices that writers have to come up with to deal with the fact that this character can literally travel as fast as the speed of light, uh, that's a pretty incredible power set. Right? You can do a lot with that. You're not bulletproof, but when, if you can punch something at close to the speed of light, you're effectively hitting with the force of a planet anyway. Um, you know, being able to, to essentially stop time, move things around, do whatever you want, go wherever you want, and, and not age, I think that's pretty handy. I have to agree with you. And it's funny because I am, I am a diehard Marvel comic kind of guy. And uh, I usually don't get into DC universe too much, although nobody can hate Batman. And um, I started watching the flash on the CW along with arrow. I guess it started with arrow and flash is one of the only shows that I, I still pretty consistently watch. I think they did a really good job of it. They do a good job with, but again, one of the things that they've, they've run into uh, the writers have this problem is that, if you if they stick by the general rules of the speed force, the only other effective villain for a speedster is another speedster. Like everybody else is like, okay, you, you, every, everyone else is literally moving at a snail's pace, and there's no there's no reasonable villain that can keep up with that when the other character can when the the hero can literally run at the speed of light around you. Um, now uh, it's interesting because if you look at uh, the Marvel universe, the Marvel universe is just even weirder and crazier because they, they've got what 52,000 earths, something like that. Well, um, I think recently just in the comic universe, didn't they just say, you know what, we're getting rid of all of them. We're just bringing it back to earth 616 or do they still have multiple universes? They still have multiple universes because they, they, they haven't figured out a lot of it has to do with licensing and stuff, how to converge stuff like the fact that the X-Men, the Transformers, GI Joe, uh, and you know, your, your, your big screen characters, all technically are in the same universe, but they, for budget reasons and, you know, reality reasons, you can't just mash all the franchises together. Yeah, that's super interesting. The, I, I think the flip side of any superhero conversation is that those powers can also get you in trouble. The minute you said the flash and you started talking about time travel, I was like, well, that like almost never works out for him or anybody else. I, again, I think that's the limitations of the writer's room because a lot of people who are writing these shows are, are you know, great writers. They're, they are in the sense that like they can do character drama and stuff real well. They're not so good at physics. <laughs> and, and, and so you get you know, deep inconsistencies about how things like time work. So, you know, there's, they, they, you, can, you, can, you can spend a long time arguing the, the nuances of, of, of how these things should work. I feel like we could have an entire podcast on Oh, that. totally. <laughs> sure there are other things that people would want to hear us talk about. So we will table the superhero discussion, but I knew that you would be one of the, the best people to ask that question to just, you know, the fact that your blog has been called Awaken Your Superhero. I was like, well, one day I'm going to get to ask him that question. <laughs> a good one. Um, all right. Well, where I want to kind of start off with is, you know, I've been following your career um, for a while sort of as a... Um, I would say almost as like an understudy as I was just getting started off. And then, you know, kind of at some point grew into, I would consider us peers in this industry. But the way that you approach the industry of marketing is, is something where you're in a very limited class of people that I look to as true experts in the field of marketing. Um, and, and it's partly by way of the way that you approach marketing from a very data-driven standpoint. I want to kind of go back to the beginning and talk to you about a conversation I call, Who Got to You First? 
So in my early days of being a marketer coming right out of my MBA, there were a couple voices out in the world that, that really resonated with me. One of which was Seth Godin, another was Mitch Joel. And um, I, I came upon your stuff. There were a couple things Jason Falls said, and they all just kind of clicked with me. Like how I saw the world resonated with how I think they were, you and, and all of the rest of them were kind of approaching the world as well. What are some of the influences and people that kind of shaped how you began to approach marketing, either from a very early age, how you got to here, or you know, as you got into it, what helped shape the way that you approach this, this whole world? So I am not a marketer by background. I am an IT person by background. My degrees are in information tech. Well, my bachelor's degree is in transnational stateless terrorism, uh, but my master's degree yeah. is in information systems. And so marketing, the, how I got into all this was as a byproduct of being in technology. I was at a uh, financial services startup in the early 2000s as the, uh, the chief information officer. And what happened was, you know, update the web server became update the website. You know, fixed send mail became, hey, can you send this email? And so I came into marketing sort of the back door from, from the technology side. And so in terms of influences within marketing, <clears throat> honestly, there haven't been that many for me uh, because of, of, of everything I've done, had to do is sort of self-taught and experimental along the way. Now, there are, as you mentioned, a number of names of, of folks who are, are, are peers and friends um, who you know, very frequently say very smart things. But in terms of uh, how I learned to think about marketing, it's actually much, much older than that. Most of the way I learned to think about solving these problems comes from the, the, my background in the martial arts. I've been practicing uh, this this old Japanese uh, martial arts, uh, this this uh, ninjutsu, for more than twenty five years now, and my teacher uh, Mark Davis, who's who based here in Boston, was the, actually the reason I moved to Boston in the late nineties to study with him, and then you know go to graduate school to do have something to do during the day. But a lot of the strategies, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the um, mindset of how do you solve problems that where you have to win, and generally speaking, the the, the entity that you are competing against, whether it's in a, a fight for your life or a fight for search rankings, uh, is better funded, better organized, bigger, tougher, stronger. How do you win against those situations? And so uh, learning to think about, okay, well, what can I do that's unconventional? What can I do that's different? What can I do that approaches things in a way that the other person doesn't have the advantage? That's how I, I learned to think about marketing. That's interesting. So it's almost like I, I'm curious if it's like the whole the art of stealth uh, in ninjutsu. Is that kind of one of the things that you look at is how can I approach this from an angle where they don't even see me coming and find an angle that nobody else does? I totally expected you to say something completely different there. <laughs> um, stealth is, is stealth is not the stealth is a byproduct in ninjutsu training. It is one of those things that you do because you have to learn how to not get caught doing things. Um, the primary role of the ninja in ancient Japan was actually information gathering. Their role was to gather information and then pass it up the chain of command to sort of their, their managers and the directors, to use modern terms. And really it was about observation. It was about collecting data, right? Analyzing data and then turning the data into insights. And so uh, you, know, you can see how this dovetails nicely with what's happening in the world today where 
we as a as as marketing practitioners but also as as citizens of the world have access to more information than we could have ever had like the the ninja of old would be like oh my god you can you have access to everything like why haven't you conquered the world yet <laughs> we had to we had to sneak into fortresses and climb up like sheer stone walls just to get like one little tiny post-it notes worth of information and you can you tell me you can sit at your desk with this piece of black glass and access everybody's information how does that work um <laughs> so Stealth is a byproduct. The, the mindset is, how, what do I need to know in order to win? What do I need to know about the person that I'm working against if there's a competitor? What do I need to know about the audience? Uh, what do I need to know if I want to influence something? One of the big things that ninjutsu is known for is, you know, a lot of people focus on like, you know, the assassin part, which very rarely actually happen. Though, if you reach the stage where physical violence or physical harm was necessary, it, it kind of meant you weren't very good at what you did um, because you should have been able to foresee and prevent problems before they happen. So if we apply that to modern marketing, how do you look at modern marketing and be able to use all these tools in SEO and social media and you know, now with machine learning and artificial intelligence, how do you use all these tools to foresee, to forecast, to predict, to look at the landscape to gain insight and position yourself so that you win without having to fight in the first place. It, it would seem to me that part of this probably comes back to being a student of people in general not, and in the specific. So how much of the way that you approach your work is individual to the situation of like, okay, well, in this situation, I need this information or these people behave in this particular way versus on a kind of a more global level, understanding what is kind of the common through line of how human beings approach certain situations um, or challenges. It goes in cycles and phases. So there's, there are a bunch of these, these alternating cycles. One that's very well known as the qualitative quantitative cycle where you use qual you begin with qualitative, like, Hey, I wonder what do people think about, you know, sandwiches, right? And, and you say, well, I like sandwiches. Maybe I should ask some friends, what do they like about sandwiches? <clears throat> and you gather some qualitative stuff, and then you use quantitative methods to 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 quantify how many people like sandwiches. Uh, you know, what percentage of the population is like ham sandwiches? And then as you get some of those insights, it spawns new qualitative questions to ask. You're like, well, do you like your ham sandwich with mustard, or how'd you learn how to make a ham sandwich? So that's one of the cycles. Another cycle is to go from, from very narrow to very broad. So we're all human, mostly. Um, and so what do we know as, as basic humans? What do we know that we like? What do we know that we don't like? And then find out like how many other people share that thing or how many other people have this perspective. <clears throat> and you do big research and then you, you shrink back down to narrow. So you're absolutely right. It's a lot of knowing people, understanding people, understanding how you, how you think as an individual and then how that applies to the market. Generally speaking, when it comes to marketing, um, what tends to go wrong for a lot of people is they don't start at... Uh, a good place. They start with like, how do I do this thing? Or yeah, uh, the shiny object of the day. Like, how do I, you know, what's our, what's our Snapchat strategy? As opposed to thinking, why, why are we doing this thing in the first place? Why are we considering this thing? What is the, the core reason or benefit we're after? <clears throat> and then backing into your campaign strategy and your, your tactics and your execution from that. People tend to get stuck on the object versus the goal. What's fascinating about that is that if you, you know, step outside of yourself for a second and think, okay, I'm talking to a marketer whose background is 
comes from technology first and foremost. You came out of like, you know, the IT background. You would think that the technology would be at the forefront of how you approach these things. But what I've noticed in the way you talk about this and the things that you write is that the technology is really just the supporting cast of your work, that you look at the tools and you understand how they're impacting things. But at the core of it, you're trying to understand the problem. You're trying to understand the audience, trying to understand the situation. So I'm curious, you know, given that you are so involved in technology, but yet you don't make it kind of the the thing that you're focused on. It's again, it's kind of the supporting role. Are there any technologies that are out there right now or any things that you're looking at that you think maybe are game changers? The sort of thing where maybe you have to think about that technology first and foremost, as opposed to um, maybe what you're trying to accomplish. Maybe the tech, like I'm thinking something like artificial intelligence or machine learning. Those can come in and completely disrupt everything that's happening across a variety of industries. So you know, at what point do we have to focus on the technology first rather than the people or the problem, et cetera? It's a good question. If you think about the balance, people, process, and platform, or people, process, and technology, which is based off of H.J. Uh, Levitt's 1964 diamond framework. Uh, you know, so it's nothing new. Anyone who's like, oh, no, this is the, the brand new digital transformation framework. No, this is literally almost 70 years old. Um, <clears throat> A lot of this stuff, a lot of the technology that we're working with now has existed in some form, either most like a theoretical form for, in some cases, 70 or more years. So the things that you see people talking about now is brand new, like artificial intelligence or like neural networks. No, these are 40, 50 years old, you know, the, the theoretical concepts. It is, what's new is our ability to use them on a practical scale. The laptop that you buy in 2019 uh, can run stuff that you know roomfuls of computers could never have done in the 60s and 70s, and so the the computational power is there now. In terms of things that will change the game, the question is how does the human behave? How does the human make their decisions? If technology and, and as you rightly point out, artificial intelligence is radically changing how humans make decisions because. When you think about something as simple as like, let's take Facebook. Facebook's artificial intelligence algorithm controls what you see. When you are on Facebook, you are not seeing what's possible. You are seeing a very narrow slice of what Facebook has decided you see. And so you need to understand the algorithms, the technology, how Facebook's algorithms make decisions and be able to create and behave in a way that is harmonious with the algorithm that takes advantage of it. Uh, folks who've been practicing SEO for you know, 20, 25 years now, they know how SEO works. They, you are, SEO is one of the few fields where you are writing for the machine, where you're creating for the machine. Now, over time, with things like machine learning and deep learning, what the machine algorithms like have been tuned to what humans like so that you can, you know, the, the advice given now by most SEO experts, which is correct, is write for the audience, not for the machine, because the machine has figured out what the audience likes. But you still need to know that there is that technological intermediary between that sits between you and the audience. So in cases where you are doing business with the machine by algorithm, um, you need to understand the technology and be able to, to work with it. Most of business, though, at the end of the day, is human connecting with human. Because once you've made that connection, once you have the ability to direct message somebody or email them or pick up the phone and call them, now you are selling or marketing 
to the human being on the other end. And then all the traditional rules of marketing apply, building relationships, building rapport, providing value, all that stuff. So marketers have to have to be skilled in both areas. It's not either or. It's such a complicated space though. You know, like I, I look at it and I even just hearing you talk about it, I think, okay, well, in a services type conversation where you are trying to sell, you know, your consulting, let's say, or your uh, SEO services or social media marketing services. I think all of those rules are very, very clear. It's it's easy to see how no matter what kind of marketing automation or different schemes you have prior to that conversation happening, how the real rubber meets the road happens in that conversation. But when you're looking at something like a product, something where you may never even speak to a person, so much of that technology is starting to move into a space where you know, I just even look at something like a Facebook ad, right? Like if you're running a Facebook ad now, imagine what it's going to look like in three or four years when all of a sudden all you have to do is upload all of your assets. It might not even be three or four years. You upload all your assets, you basically say in plain language to Facebook, here's who I'm trying to reach and get them to do. And they just figure it out using their tools and technologies and maybe libraries of content. It's, um, it's definitely kind of daunting, it is. Google Ads has actually gone that route. It's already live in market. Um, they realize that there are a substantial number of small businesses that simply do not have the capability to to build the technology for themselves. Think about like your local plumber. Um, your, your local plumber focuses 100% of the time on being a plumber, and they may not even have a website. And so one of the things that Google de- de- uh, debuted in last year's Google Marketing Platform Conference was, hey, we're just going to do it for you. So you buy Google ads from us and we're going to set up a landing page. We're going to set up uh, the, you know, the, the click to call. We're going to set up the image, the copy, all that stuff so that you can get around to running your business and let us handle the worrying about the advertising. When you think about that, that is mind blowing that Google is saying, look, we know you're going to, whatever website you're going to come up with, it's going to suck, right? So it's going to be, it looked like, you know, somebody copied it right out of 2003. So we'll just do it for you. It'll convert reasonably well. You'll get your money's worth and, and you just go on with your day. That is where artificial intelligence will be going uh, and will be taking marketers. There, there will be a point where the day-to-day tactical implementation of marketing will be handing more and more individual pieces over to the machines because frankly, the machines will be better at it than we are. So that kind of presumes to a certain extent that human beings are consistent, that we're not changing all that much in how we behave and how we make buying decisions and things like that. And I I think I kind of lean towards the idea that human beings don't change all that much, that you know, we may change in our behaviors of the technologies we use or you know, maybe some of our day-to-day habits, but ultimately our decision-making, our experience as humans is only moderately deviated by technology, but that ultimately we, we are very consistent. But there's an argument to be made that maybe all of these technologies are changing the way we think, the way that we process information, we communicate. I'm curious where you land on the idea of human behavior change as a function of technology as we are rapidly uh, changing our technological environment at a, at a faster and faster turnaround. The how, the micro changes regularly. Right? You ask people these days to remember something, and they can't remember anything because people are used to Googling it. Um, the macro doesn't change. So what does every business you know, executive want? Better, faster, cheaper, right? That's what every single business executive wants. I can't think of a single company that says, no, I'd like things to be more expensive, lower quality, and slower in the vendors I choose from. Nobody wants that, right? On the consumer side, uh, people also, consumers want better, faster, cheaper, and they generally want to be, you know, 
safe. They want to be fed. Uh, they want to have, you know, if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's pretty consistent. And so those things don't change at a macro level. It's how we fulfill that as marketers and as, as companies that uh, we need to adapt to. Something like, uh, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that we have, as, a, as people, uh, drastically diminish the amount of patience we have because we are used to literally touching a button on our phones and having something happen. The number of people who uh, <clears throat> misplace their excrement if their Uber is five minutes late uh, is astonishing when, when you think about the process of what it was like in the old days to take a taxi cab when you didn't have an app on your phone or uh, the number of people who are like really irritated that you know, Amazon magically did not deliver their package exactly at 8 p.m. when they said they would. When, you know, two days shipping 10 years ago was, like, was still a novelty. And so we've changed our expectations uh, in the way that we, are, we get things, but it doesn't change what we want. Oh, God, I, I got to be honest, I feel so called out. I know you didn't do that on purpose, but those are two, mo those are two things that have happened to me recently where I literally <laughs> misplaced my excrement. P.S. Great term there. Uh, over exactly those two things. I routinely get bent out of shape about Ubers, and I was waiting for something from Amazon that UPS didn't deliver before I left for a trip. And I, I just I misplaced my excrement. It's really funny that you use those two examples. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I, I'll say this. I completely agree with you. I think on the micro things change. What I'm finding interesting is, and I'm, I'm really curious if you're seeing something similar because I know that you're going to be deeper into the uh, data that may either support or contradict this, but it appears to me, and this is through my own experience, sample size of one there, but then also just seeing generally what's popping up in my news feeds and on Twitter and just all over social media, that the landscape has changed pretty dramatically in the sense that politics have created a, an environment of divisiveness. I think people's behaviors in general, they're more comfortable being more openly opinionated. I think at the same time, the influx of bots is kind of clouding it. The algorithms that show you more of the things that they think you want to see, it, it seems to have led to a somewhat of a general fatigue around social media and I'm curious if, one, if you see that and if, if that's maybe just my perception or if that's true. And then, two, if that is true, or even if it's not, I guess, how, how um, useful is social listening anymore? Because I remember there was a time where I would really try and push for that because I thought there was a value in it. And now I'm not so sure because of the, the muddying of the waters. What's your take on that? There is absolutely a data quality issue in social media. If you are only using social media data uh, to try and do quantitative analysis, you are uh, drastically missing a, a big portion of the picture because, again, to your point, there is a lot of junk. There are, is a lot of not necessarily true things. Social media, uh, my friend Tom Webster or Edison Research says this, and it's really true. Social media is a great source for qualitative data. Like, what, is the, what are the topics people are talking about? And then you have to use other methods like market research to determine <clears throat> a, a more calibrated, what is, you know, what's a representative sample uh, of the population that we can look at to see whether this, you know, whether people like ham sandwiches or not, uh, is actually true. <clears throat> and so for a lot of marketers who, have, who got used to the easy way of only using social media, uh, there, there is a substantial risk there. Uh, for, at, a, at a bare minimum, you should be using search and social data in tandem because search data, again, no, no one's going to write a Russian bot to just ask Google uh, you know, who should run for, for a president of the United States. That doesn't 
there's no output on that and therefore there's no reason to try and influence that in search volume. And so if you're using search volume to calibrate social to get a better understanding of how much interest is there, especially when it comes to um, social stigma, um, you, you want to pay attention to that. So a real simple example of social stigma. Um, there are things that people type into Google. There's a book uh, title, it was called Everybody's Lying, um, where people type things into Google that they would never, ever, ever say to another human being. Uh, one of the top questions people ask, uh, uh, males ask of Google is, what is the average length of a certain part of their body? They don't ask this to their friends or their colleagues or their coworkers. It's, it's inappropriate to do so, but they ask Google that a lot. And so, uh, Having multiple data sources is really important for triangulating and understanding what's being said and understanding how artificial or natural it may be. So that's sort of a, a tactical perspective on that. At a, at a broader level, though, I mean, when you talk to people, uh, I, I did a, something at a recent event, the Marketing Profits B2B Forum. Uh, one of my offbeat skills is uh, doing tarot card readings. And uh, I did it to, to pay my way through graduate school because it turns out when you, go, when you attend school in a, a very wealthy town like Boston and uh, you, you go to a bar that is filled with really, really drunk undergraduates who have you know, a different uh, BMW for every, every season, uh, they tip pretty well. It's a great way to pay for graduate school. <clears throat> so when I did this at this conference, people ask for the same things. Am I going to fall in love with this person? Is this person the right person for me? Am I going to get a promotion? Uh, am I going to change jobs? Uh, what is it going to take for me to be happy and stuff? So those, those root things, they stay the same. When you look at uh, a company like, uh, that does its marketing and its customer experience really well, like in Amazon, for example, they focus on removing the friction from business transactions so that you can get the things you want, which are always the same. I want better, faster, cheaper. But they, they work on making it as easy as possible to get better, faster, cheaper. As long as marketers think about that, think whether it's no matter what the technology, no matter what the interface, no matter what the network, how do I help my customers get to better, faster, cheaper through us? You'll do fine. So the, the, the question I want to come back to, and I want to use this to go into the, the next thing I want to ask your opinion on, but as far as the usage trends in social, have you seen anything in that that would indicate that people, that maybe we've we reached the cliff and we're on the way down or that maybe things are, I'm just curious, I guess, let me back up and say it differently. What is the state of social media right now and, and how does that factor in? for maybe some of the, what I'll call old head marketers that were kind of waiting out to see if this thing was going to really take off. <laughs> How important do you think that it still is in this day and age? Like, does it even matter to still be paying close attention or if we kind of narrowed the focus to, hey, there's a few things that really work. Here's what we use it for. That's that. What's your take on the state of it? Uh, social media, not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, any service, any platform that has a billion daily active users uh, is not going anywhere anytime soon. So as much as people like to, to crap on Facebook and its various properties, guess what? There's still 2 billion active users on it, um, which is more than, when you think about it, other than oxygen and food and water, there are no other products that, that have gotten that much adoption by the human race in the entirety of our civilization, right? Porn. <clears throat> Nothing. I porn. I, I think... <clears throat> Maybe, maybe, um, but 
they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Now, what we are seeing is changes in behavior in the way these platforms are used and the the splintering and fragmentation of data availability and and where conversations happen. It should be no surprise to anybody who's been paying attention for the last three years that conversations are moving into private domains. Chat apps, WhatsApp, WeChat, Kick, Line, Tango, uh, Facebook Messenger, iMessages, Android Messages, tech, regular text messages. The conversation has has moved. Slack is the you know, which by the way is just a rebranded IRC for the for those of you with enough gray hair. Um, Slack is where B two B conversations happen. Discord is where a lot of B two C conversations, particularly among gamers, happen. You have Twitch, you have YouTube, uh, you have Instagram Direct now, which was at the time was like revolutionary. You have all these different formats. So the the proliferation of formats and places for people to have conversations has changed. And marketers who are expecting everybody to only talk out loud on Twitter are going to be very disappointed that that's not where the conversation is only happening. It is still happening there, and Twitter is oddly more relevant than ever because we have politicians in the United States who make policy announcements on Twitter without telling anyone else. But it by itself is not the the source that it used to be. So if you're a marketer, you absolutely need to be doing two things. One, you have to have your own captured audience. That may be a mailing list. That may be a private Slack instance uh, of your own. That may be a, a text circle. It may be a Facebook private group. But you have to have someplace where you have the ability to reach the audience. And I would say today, if you have not figured out email marketing by now, you're really in a lot of trouble because email is still the unfiltered channel. As long as you have permission to send the email and as long as the person on the other end receives the email, Ann Handley says this, 100% of the content in that email is what you intended it to be, as opposed to even in a private Facebook group. You publish something to Facebook, there is no guarantee that more than a fraction of the members of that group are going to see it in a timely manner. So you want to have something that you own that is an audience that, that is under control. And the second thing is, you've got to be good at primary research. You've got to be good at going out and running surveys, running market research and stuff to compensate for the fact that the fragments you're getting from all these social networks and all these different data sources may not be complete. So you you need to understand how to do market research or you need to have a market research firm in your pocket that you can use for high priority projects. All right. I want to, I want to have you maybe help people get their yellow belt. So the, the white belt of uh, online research could be searching Google, going on Twitter, running a Twitter search and, checking for conversations and maybe going amongst your peers inside Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, whatever, maybe running a Google survey. Talk to me a little bit about what the yellow belt might look like in getting some of this on the ground data that helps inform businesses, the the decisions that businesses want to make to grow their business. Take a course in statistics so that you understand what you're doing with numbers because I have seen marketers horribly butcher numbers, even when they've gotten credible market research, the way they've processed it has been appalling. And take a market research course. Here's the thing. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There is more free, high-quality information available now than there has ever been access to in the entirety of human civilization. 
If you go over, for example, to MIT's Open Courseware site, you can take pretty much any MIT course you want. So, like top shelf education available for free because you, know, you you can't get credit for it. MIT has realized that the value of their brand as an institution is not the dispensing of knowledge; it is the validation that the knowledge actually arrived in your head. Um, so, the courseware is all free. Take these courses. They have. There is a market research course. There is a statistics course. Take these courses and, and learn how to do this stuff. Learn how to analyze basic numbers. Like know the difference between a median and an average, because even something as simple as that will drastically change how you do your marketing reporting. A lot of marketers love the average because when you get something that is an anomaly, that is an outlier, like, hey, we got a really popular day on our website. Um, it makes your numbers on average look good, but it doesn't really change the median all that much unless you've managed to create a, a sustaining trend. However, the next year rolls around and your numbers are down 40% and you're like, I don't know why. And you're like, I don't want to get fired. Well, it's because you didn't do the math right the last time around. If you'd stuck with, if you use median previous year, you use median this year, you'll get a much better sense of, of how things are actually doing in your marketing. So basic statistics is super important. And if you have any aspirations to learn and be and practice, you know, data science and machine learning, they are they are founded on statistics. You need to learn that first. Um, I will take a, a a brief detour to say that marketers don't have to and probably should not become data scientists unless you have a true deep in your heart aspiration to change professions and and pursue that because those are actual professions. It is as different as going from uh, being a journalist to being a chef, right? You know you you can learn some of the basics. Like you can take a crash course in cooking. Like, you know, I can learn how to boil water and make toast and stuff like that. But to become a true professional chef requires a, a pivot in what you do with eight hours of every day. If you aspire to that, as you say, to, to you know, getting your yell about, yes, you, can, you, you need to learn statistics. You may, not, you may not want to become a data scientist. So you're one of the most data-driven marketers that I speak to. And I just spoke with Tom Webster, actually, I think it was last week. Um, and he taught me what pivot tables and regression analysis are, which I was very thankful for. Um, but as someone who uses data in your marketing, obviously, you value that. It's not just something that comes natural to you, but I think you you clearly use data for the reasons that you believe it's important in making decisions. To, to what extent do you think marketers would be well uh, would would be smart to learn more about how data factors into their marketing decisions. Like to what extent? You said they don't need to become maybe statisticians, but they probably should take that introduction to statistics course. What's the level that you think is appropriate? The level is appropriate. It, it changes depending on on your role and and where you are in your career. <clears throat> if you think of data as a raw material, which it really is. How much do you need to refine it to make it usable? Just like if you think about food, like the, that ear of corn that's growing out in the field, how much do you need to refine it to be able to make use of it? Well, if you are starving to death, guess what? Just take the corn off the stalk, boil it, and eat it, right? It's problem solved. You're not going to starve to death anymore. However, if your mission is to make... Um, burrito wraps, then guess what? You better learn how to grind corn. You better learn how the different types of corn. You better learn how to, to, to 
do nixtamalization, which negates some of the the, the lime that or some of the the, the toughness of the outer husk of the corn. And there's a whole bunch more you need to learn to to get to the output. So it depends on you and your marketing career. How much of the raw data product are you expected to refine to be able to do your job? And ultimately, <clears throat> what decisions are you going to make with it? That is where marketers get the most lost. We spend so much time on tools and <clears throat> uh, the shiny objects of the day. And even I would say, you know, stuff like machine learning can be a distraction. And what ends up happening when you look at how marketers do their reporting, very often it looks like this. They back the truck up and pour data all over your desk, right? Like, hey, we got this many followers and this many website visitors and this, that, and you know, here's a bar chart and a, and a pie chart of the number of people who liked our, our Facebook page. Cool. What does it all mean? What, what happened? Why did it happen? What should I do about it? If, you, if as a marketer or as a, an executive, if, if, that you dump, if you dump that on my desk, I'm going to say, okay, well, what decision would you like me to make? Most of the time, the marketer's like, I don't know. I'm just giving, the, I'm giving you the data. You asked for the data. Here's the data. Like, nope, that, I, didn't, I didn't ask for the data. I asked for, tell me what happened. Tell me why. Tell me what you're going to do about it and what decisions you need me to make. When you refocus your use of data that way, then you start to think, okay, as a marketer, what skills do I need to accrue in order to be able to tell my CEO, I need a decision for 20% more budget to get you more sales, right? Or I need to see, I, we're, we're going to stop doing Facebook because the return on investment is so poor that we can put those resources elsewhere. At the end of the day, when you look at what marketing is being asked to do, marketing is being asked to enable sales, to help grow revenue, uh, to retain customers through loyalty, through brand and stuff like that. How much data do you need to do that? Depends on the company. But how much do you need to focus on the usable outputs? That's where all your time should be is how do I get the decisions we need or tell people what decisions they need to make in order for us to grow the company? So let me see if I can say that back to you and, and you agree or disagree with it. But it, it sounds to me like you're saying work backwards. Think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. and think about what are the insights I probably need in order to make that decision. Then look at the data that would be available to you or that you would need to get in order to make that insight. And then learn the skills you need to be able to derive from that data the insight that's needed to make the business decision. That's right. And depending, again, on where you are in your career and your role, you may not be even be the one getting that data, but you, you are just knowing what questions you need to ask. One of the terms that I like to use is a marketer. If you are in charge of marketing at your company, you should be the chief questions officer. That is your role. Your job is to ask great questions and to ask that of your peers and your subordinates to say, I need answers to these questions. What makes people want to buy our product? Right? That's a really good question. And it's a question that nobody asks because we're so fixated on the raw data itself that we're not, we're not refining our usage of that data to understand it. There's a great expression that was first coined in 2006 by, a, I believe it was a Cisco executive who said, data is the new oil. If you've ever worked with crude oil, you know that's absolutely correct because crude oil is disgusting. It's messy. It makes a black, thick smoke when it burns, and it's useful for pretty much nothing. You have to refine it. You have to process it in a laboratory. You have to break it. You have to crack hydrocarbons. You have to do all the stuff to turn it into usable products like plastic cereal bowls and gasoline for your car. You know, gasoline for your car doesn't grow underground, and plastic cereal bowls don't pop out of the ground as is. The same is true of data. 
if you're just pouring raw data on somebody's desk, it's the equivalent of pouring crude oil into your car and you, nothing good is going to happen. Totally makes sense. I want to take that conversation and blend it with something that we talked a little bit about earlier when you were talking about the email marketing list and building your kind of direct channel to communicate with your audience. And I want to use that to talk a little bit about influencer marketing because I was listening to <laughs> your episodes of uh, Marketing for Coffee recently. And you were uh, it was the episode where you were talking about Taylor Swift and her potential impact to shift sentiment and, and basically inspire people to action. And it really got me thinking. And as part of that thinking, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the data that you might want to be looking for if you're getting into influencer marketing. So obviously, when we talk about a Kim, Kar- Kim Kardashian, a Kylie Jenner, a Taylor Swift, they have huge, enormous audiences, and they can put something out into the world that'll be talked about. But for smaller influencers and you know just the general state of influencer marketing, based upon the the thing that you said earlier about having that direct line of uh, communication with your audience, do you then suggest segmenting your influencers as you're researching them by the ones that have a direct channel versus the ones that have more of a broadcast channel? So it's really interesting. Influencer marketing, I think of all of the fields of marketing that are currently hot, I think has some of the crappiest analytics in the entirety of marketing because no one is working well with the data. There are functionally if you look at how data flows around influencers, there's three archetypes of influencers, right? There is the broadcaster, the loud person, large following, loud person, and they function a lot like a broadcast advertising channel. If you want a Kardashian to, to, to hawk your pharmaceutical, guess what? You can buy a Kardashian to do that. It will cost you a lot of money, but you can get them to, to, to be the puppet to, to, and you put the words in the mouth and, and, and you get stuff to happen because they're, they're a broadcaster. The second type of influencer is is a hub influencer. This is someone who is the hub of their personal network. And they may or may not publish a ton. They may or may not be super loud. But they are that person who everybody knows and everybody uh, talks to that person. Like, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? And that's what that person does. And that hub influencer, you've got to be able to see them in the data as being a, a you know, they have a very short travel distance between them and, and their networks. Uh, but they also have extensive networks that are, you know, two or three hops away, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? They're two degrees away from everybody. And then the third type of influencer is sort of the authority figure. They may not say much, but when they do, everybody pays attention. They are, uh, they're the person everyone talks about, even if they don't do much talking themselves. Malcolm Gladwell is a really good example of that kind of person. Um, Tom Webster, that you mentioned earlier, is an example of that kind of person, particularly in the market research and the, and the, uh, the, the, the audio realm. He doesn't do a ton of publication talking, but when he talks, everybody listens to what he has to say. Um, if, for those of you who have enough gray hair, there was actually a, an ad series in the 70s and 80s about E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens because he doesn't do it much, but when he does, it's super valuable. Understanding that you can see patterns in data and the way people react to each other uh, you can isolate these three different types of influencers based on the way the data looks, the way the data flows when you graph it out. And then you choose the kind of influencers that you want to work with that are aligned to your goals. Do you want brand awareness? Work with a broadcaster. Do you want something that's probably going to be more of a nurture thing or uh, something for sales enablement? Work with an authority. Do you need to, to create pipeline? You probably want to work with a hub influencer. So it's it's being able to match the type of influencer with the the goals that you've set. 
it's interesting. I actually use a very similar model. It's a slight distinction. I, I generally say that there's four levels of influencer and at the top is the celebrity. The one beneath that is what I think you're calling the authority figure. I generally say more of a, um, like a niche celebrity, somebody who within their particular area of expertise they're very well known. They carry a lot of uh, reach and potential influence. Someone like I, I usually use like Gary Vaynerchuk as an example, or um, Tony Robbins, or something like that. Then beneath that, I say there's like that micro influencer type, somebody who has a, a decent sized network. That's probably more like your hub. But the fourth one that I uh, often talk to people about is, um, and it's shaped like a pyramid because there's less at the top and more at the bottom. But the bottom level is the everyday person, and that influencer is the person where, let's say, I was going to Boston. I might ring you up and be like, Chris, what's a good sushi restaurant in Boston? Or where should I go to get a lobster roll? Something like that. And I would trust you regardless of the fact that you're not a lobster roll influencer. It's that your level of influence around that because you're known to me would be higher. Mm -hmm. That's another level that I use. I I think there's value in that. The the distinction of the three types of influencers that we use from a from a data perspective is that there it's not hierarchical they're they're separate entities the data patterns when you graph them out the data patterns look very different it's it's like you know the difference between a sports car and a dump truck uh and a and a station wagon there isn't necessarily a better one it's it's the one that fits what you need it to do you can lust over the porsche 911 all you want but if you need to haul 500 pounds uh, 5000 pounds of bricks you probably want the dump truck that makes perfect sense. And I'd be really curious to one day just like unpack the overlap between the model, because the way mine is kind of laid out, the model I use is more about how much are you going to spend for it? What's mm-hmm. the potential reach of these different types? But it's less about like modeling out how to tell one from another. So that when you go into the identification of those people, there's probably a really interesting overlap between those two models. Definitely. And the other thing that people don't do well with influencers at all, and this blows my mind is okay you find you spent a lot of money on influencer marketing software you've got influencer marketing budget then they do zero research and just kind of pitch the influencer called and hope that it works out if when you're picking an influence if you don't look at the last year's worth of what that influencer has published and do some analysis on it you're wasting your time and money you know find out what else that influencer cares about so that you can craft a pitch that not only is going to resonate with the influencer, but because their audience is used to seeing them talk about that thing already, it will harmonize so well and you'll get so much more uh, result out of your program. I remember back in the day, there was this one fashion influencer that I was working with as an automotive brand. And they're like, oh, you got to get this fashion influencer and have them pose and take pictures with the car and stuff. And they, you know, they pay like $140,000 for this person to show up at this show and, and take like 10 pictures on Instagram. And it didn't move the needle at all because that fashion influencer never talked about cars. Uh, so, you know, for the rest of the year. And so it's like, oh, why did you pick this person? Yes, they've got an audience, but guess what? They're, you didn't do any research on the audience. You didn't do any research on the influencer. You just spent a whole bunch of money for no particularly good reason. And then you're wondering why you got no results. Now, had they done their research and found a fashion influencer who was, guess what, posing and driving in cars all the time, they probably could have spent less and they would have gotten a much better result because they did their homework. I'd imagine there's also a a tremendous uh, risk management aspect to that as well of looking back and saying, well, does this person also potentially have views that are in conflict? Are they a Nazi? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like there's probably... A lot to think about in that sense, especially because of uh, the the recency of social media in terms of its you know age in our collective conscience um, or consciousness. 
it would seem to me that like, you know, the things that we might've said and felt comfortable with in 2011 might be a lot different than the things that we might do now. Yeah. I mean, the, the, as you said, the tone and discourse, uh, of what is said, uh, in social media, in society, what is acceptable for figures and authority to say has so radically shifted in the last three years that it, it, there is a, a tremendous amount of polarization in the audience and you have to decide how, how comfortable you are with that and how much of it you want. And, you know, there's this idea now in public relations, in the public relations world of brands, you know, having value-based campaigns or taking a stand on certain issues. Are you comfortable with that? How well do you know your own audience to be able to say, well, like, well, we support this cause or we oppose this cause? That comes into play in influencer marketing, but that's also basic data research. And again, if you have no qualitative and quantitative research capabilities, you could be making some really horrible decisions for your company. I love it. I love it. Well, Chris, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but I know that our time today is limited, but I would have you back anytime that you are bored on a Friday and <laughs> sit down and talk about the world of marketing. You're such a fascinating dude. I want to ask you a bunch of questions that I like to ask my different guests uh, so that they can provide what I call shareables. And these are just things that, uh, you know, for my, for my audience that's trying to think of what's a book I should read, what's a, this I should do, or that, or a piece of advice. I like to ask all my guests because we, everybody gives, uh, you know, different ideas for all these things. So I'm going to, I'm going to fire off a couple questions at you. So first is what's one book that every person should read. It doesn't have to be a business book. It could just be any book that you think everyone should read. The Art of War by Sun Tzu, the Thomas Cleary translation. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite podcast? You can't say shareable and you can't say your own. Uh, can't say shareable, can't say my own. Favorite podcast I find useful is Exchanges with Goldman Sachs because you get a chance to hear what one of the biggest finance companies is doing and what their perspective on the economy is. That is exactly the reason why I ask these questions because there is not a damn chance in hell I would have ever picked that up. <laughs> so that's really, this is exactly what I do this. Uh, what's a TV show, movie, YouTube video, or anything else that you can watch that everyone should go and watch immediately? Hmm. I would say go watch some of the roundups of the, the entertainment show, The Voice, because it gives you insight into other cultures. Don't watch just the American one. Or if you're an American, watch other cultures. I like the Ukraine's version of The Voice. You see and get to understand the character of a nation um, based on you know, what they like in music. And uh, it, it is some fascinating rabbit holes to chase down. That's hilarious. My wife we, on Saturday mornings, we, uh, we do that, you know, thing where you lay there and you look at your phones for a little bit in the morning and her entire news feed is so different from mine. All it is, is like the voice and Ellen and America's got talent. And she routinely watches, uh, you know, the voice and America's got, or, you know, the, the talent shows from around the world. And it's mm-hmm. crazy. definitely seen like Russia, Korea, China, all over the place. It's, it's, that's a really interesting recommendation. Um, I'm really curious about your take on this one, but what's one application, mobile or desktop, that everyone should go and download? Uh, The only rule is you can't say Evernote, so be creative. (laughs) Um, Gosh, it depends on what you want. If I had to, if there's one application like the, like you know, you're not allowed to delete that from my from my computer. um, That would probably be. I use R, the programming language R. It's not for everybody. I have never heard of that. Interesting. But it, it is a statistical programming language that if this is if that is your calling, if you love, love, love stats, it is one of the most powerful pieces of hard software you can have on your computer. Fascinating. All right. What is the big lesson that you wished you learned earlier in your career? <laughs> um, be patient. Very good one. Still working on that. Uh, what's the most important skill of the future? 
uh, critical thinking because we don't teach it anymore. The American education system was created by Rockefeller and Carnegie and Mellon back in the 30s to create obedient factory workers. That's why we have grades. They're, they're batches. This way of testing, it's called QA. We've engineered a system of education for factories that don't exist anymore, and we don't teach people to think critically. And yet we are faced with a world with such radical complexity that you need to be able to think critically. 100% agree. I love it. Seth Godin talks about that all the time about our broken education system and how it was, you know, basically created to make factory workers. And it's one of the reasons why obviously school wasn't really as much my thing. I don't really follow directions well. <laughs> it is the final one that wraps everything up and you can take a second to think about it because it's the big one. But what is one thing that everybody listening to this episode right now should go and do today? Take a statistics course from MIT for free. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Chris, where can people go and be social with you? Learn more about what you're doing and hire you to do all sorts of great things. You can find my company at trustinsights.ai and you can find me personally at christophersp.com. I strongly recommend to all of my listeners that you follow Chris. I have been following him for many years and uh, the, the information that you pass along and the questions you answer and the insights you bring are just invaluable. So uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I've wanted to have you on for a while. You've been sitting on my wish list and uh, it wasn't until you, you answered my open call to our community. Uh, so I'm really glad that you did. And uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, so if I could call this episode one thing and one thing only, and I had to describe it with a word that encapsulated everything that happened here today, I guess I would say it's shareable. Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Sohn because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible. Shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 